This is a Federal News Network podcast. A green card is a terrible thing to waste, but that's exactly what U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services might be doing. The agency, by most accounts, still hasn't returned to full operating capacity after two years of pandemic. So it's having trouble processing all of the visa numbers available. We get more now from attorney Steve Plastrick of Barry, Appleman and Leiden. And we should begin by saying you are a former USCIS attorney, so you know whereof you speak here. Tom, thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I worked at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services for about five years previously. All right. So describe the process, the green card process that we're talking about here that they're having trouble getting through. Sure. So the green card process is the process of obtaining lawful permanent residence in the United States. And there's two main pathways through this. One is based on family relationships to a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident. And the other main route is through your employment in the United States. And it's a multi-step process that requires both demonstrating your connection to a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident family member in a qualifying way or demonstrating a qualifying occupation and job opportunity for yourself. And after that, you have to file another application that will demonstrate your eligibility for that green card. And so it can take many years and is a long, winding process for a lot of folks. And each year, there's a set number of green cards available, correct? There's different levels of green card or different classes of green card, correct? Correct. There are caps that are placed by congressional law on the number of green cards that are available each year. And at the end of the fiscal year, the green cards that are not used in each of those categories, some of them roll over into different categories for later years. But because of the way the system works, at the end of the fiscal year, some number are also lost if they're not issued within that year. So what is the issue for USCIS? What's the problem here that they're not being seemingly able to get to all of the numbers, that is to say all of the applications associated with numbers that they have? Uh, That's a great question, and uh, the answer is complicated. There's a number of different factors that have gone into creating the situation this year. First, there's a record number of employment-based green cards available this year. This is because in the previous year, the family-based green cards were not able to be issued in the full amount. And part of that was operational challenges resulting from COVID, also restrictions on offices being open, both in the United States and abroad at the State Department. And that made it difficult for the agencies to issue family-based green cards, which then rolled over into the employment-based category at the end of the fiscal year. So USCIS is starting with approximately 280,000 employment-based green cards that it can issue this year and is still working through the operational challenges related with return to the office and just addressing the return to work after office closures. So how this works is if someone feels they can do work that is needed in the United States under one of those numbers, that person applies and then gets a number and then that becomes almost like their case tracking piece? Yeah, at a high level. There's a lot of restrictions on who is eligible to apply for that green card. You have to have demonstrated that you qualify for one of the categories and be eligible within a cap based on your country of birth in order to be able to even apply for that green card and get in that line. So this could be like programmers, for example, 
computer scientists. That's one of the big categories every year, correct? Yes. The different categories for employment-based green cards are based on qualifications. And so there's some that are available for outstanding researchers, multinational managers or executives, or individuals with a advanced degree and a job offer in that occupation. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Plastrick of Barry Appleman and Leiden. And the practical effect of this then is all of the numbers could not be used. Is this because of a lack of USCIS personnel capacity? And, and where does that stem from? That's certainly an aspect of it. The agency has run into funding issues for a number of years, and that's a result of the fact that approximately 97% of the agency's funding comes from the fees associated with immigration filings. And during the pandemic in particular, there was a large drop-off of filings, which meant that the funding for the agency also decreased. On top of that, there's been operational challenges at the agency that have slowed down processing, increased costs over the number of years, and also attrition within the number of officers working within the agency. And so some of it is funding, some of it is also staffing, and some of it is also just it's a very large task with this record number of green cards available this year. The slower then that they are able to process them, the less revenue they get. And it's kind of like a self-fulfilling negative vortex they get themselves in. Absolutely. And you've got some recommendations for how they can get out of this hole. Uh, what are some of those? So the, the good news is that the agency has already taken really good steps forward in streamlining its processes and also um, tackling this immense task in front of it. They've begun waiving interviews for certain employment-based applicants who don't present any eligibility issues. That means that they don't have to bring applicants in for interviews into the office. They've also begun shifting work around the country to different office locations that have capacity to adjudicate these kinds of applications and are also taking some other steps to transfer eligibility between categories in order to maximize the number they can use. But what we've asked for in the article that we published was really taking these initiatives and pushing them even further. It's a whole year-long process to issue green cards, and they need to do all the steps that they can early in the year in order to maximize the usage at the end of the year. And one of the things we've recommended is implementing what's called Tiger Teams. And these are teams of experts with plenty of experience and operational understanding who can cut through the difficulties and really focus on streamlining the process, hitting targets in order to issue the maximum number of green cards that they can. And even some small things like having interviews where they're necessary by video and therefore people don't have to travel and there's not all of that overhead effort. Absolutely. Also working earlier in the process to consolidate the hard copy files that are still the backbone of U.S. citizenship and immigration services adjudications and processes, making sure that they know that an interview or an adjudication is going to be occurring, that all of the files are located in one place so the officer can pick everything up at once and make a decision without having to order a file from across the country and wait for its arrival. And the bigger picture here is that the economy is deprived of productive people that want to be in the United States for all the right reasons to be productive. So therefore, there's an economic cost to this, as well as a cost of somehow the failure to be able to diversify the nation with talent that wants to be here from all over the world. 
Absolutely. And one of the changes that we've seen over the course of the pandemic and the last few years is as the U.S. immigration system has become more difficult to navigate and more restrictive in many ways, there's been a loss of competitiveness to other countries, in particular Canada. And candidates who are well qualified and waiting for a green card to become available to them in the United States have other opportunities outside the United States that they might want to take advantage of just to have that peace of mind of knowing that they're on the right track. And do you ever talk to former colleagues at USCIS and they say, oh, Stephen, you can't believe what it's like here. (laughs) I do keep in touch with former colleagues, but the good news is that overall, it seems like they have been much more supported under this administration to be candid. And also, it's encouraging to see things moving in a positive direction. And I feel that both in my own interactions with the government and also the interactions with my former colleagues. Stephen Plastrick is a senior attorney at Berry, Appleman, and Leiden, and former associate counsel at USCIS. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.